Let's pray. Lord, we marvel at your faithfulness. Even when we are faithless, you remain true to your word and call us back to you. We marvel at your presence. Even when we spend our time distracted by anything and everything but you, you are near, calling us to bask in your light. We marvel at your compassion. Even when we can't extend this understanding love to those around us, you show us how great your love is, even for your enemies. We thank you for all of these things about you, and we confess that we need to marvel more. Our senses are dulled, and we are satisfied with far lesser things than you. Holy Spirit, stir up our affections for you and for your mission. Even this morning, as we hear your word taught, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and help us to respond with faithfulness, a greater awareness of your presence, and compassion. You know even better than we do, Lord, how COVID-19 has affected the physical, mental, and spiritual health of so, so many. We pray that in whatever way you see fit to bring all of this to an end. We ask for protection for those who are working in hospitals and clinics. Help them to serve those who are suffering well, even as they are beyond fatigued. We ask for protection for those working in other jobs that require exposure to large numbers of people. Give them relief from any fears they may have and help them to act with wisdom and grace. We pray for wisdom for leaders at every level of government and industry, that they would have insight into how best to respond to the disease. We pray for those of us who will and are already struggling to hold close to their faith while we aren't gathering. Help us to prize you and your word in a way that keeps us close to you. Help us to learn to love having our hearts and minds shaped by prayer. In all of these things, no matter what the, the future holds, we ask that we would be forever changed by the loving and faithful obedience of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. It's good to be here with you all. Um, in person, the few of you who are helping out run the service this morning, and all of you who are watching online. Um, just a quick shout out to our band for leading us in song. Thank you, Seth and Danielle, for that. Uh, for Ryan for preparing our hearts and minds through prayer. To Rachel for a reading. And to all of our tech crew for getting us up and running this morning. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's good to be with you wherever you are and however you may be listening this morning. Uh, for those of you tuning in expecting to see Hans, I am not him. A little shorter, a little more hair. Uh... Those of you who don't know me, I'm Tyler, and I'm one of the elders here at Mission. I'm so glad that you are tuning in this morning. And as some of you know, I teach high school science, and we've been doing this online remote learning thing uh, for the whole year. So I was joking with one of the other elders the other day, they picked the right guy for the job because I'm used to talking into a screen with no audience. It is indeed an interesting time in history, isn't it? Things are changing at such a rapid pace, and my head has been swimming with everything that has been going on. But we know that God never changes, and that his word is true, and we can take comfort in that. And so this morning, we're going to continue through our study through the book of Mark. And I want to start by reminding us of that central question that Mark has been asking. And that question is this. Who do you say Jesus is? 
Who do you say Jesus is? And so far, Mark has only given us readers ironic clues and hints. But the characters in the story seem to be oblivious to who Jesus truly is. And in today's passage, we're going to see a surprising climax. And we'll finally see Mark vicariously answer the question that he's been asking. And so I've titled today's message, A Convergence of Crimson Threads. A Convergence of Crimson Threads. You see, the narrative of the text before us this morning is amongst the most well-known pieces of the Bible's story. I suspect that most of the children in our church could retell this portion of Scripture accurately, right? Jesus died on the cross. It's one of the most basic pieces of text. However, because it is so well known, we're just really used to it. It's lost some of its power, its impact, because it's become rote. And so today, I want to plumb some of the depths of this scripture this morning. I want to look at how some of the themes of the whole Bible as a coherent story, the meta-narrative of scripture, show up and converge at the cross. Now, I want to preface this by saying as well that this morning is not an exhaustive survey. This is a time-permitting glance at the richness, depth, and mystery of this passage and of the gospel more generally. So hopefully you'll get done listening this morning and you'll end up with more questions. And hopefully it'll spur you on to your own exploration this week. But I'd like to give you a little bit more structure before we jump into the text this morning. Because I think that however you may be participating in this service, watching live, maybe tuning in later in the week, this will help keep us focused. So this morning I want to explore three things. The three main things I want to explore this morning. One, a theology of suffering. A theology of suffering. Two, a theology of atonement. A theology of atonement. And three, a theology of kingdom. A theology of kingdom. And we see these ideas woven throughout the narrative of Scripture, all the way from the beginning in Genesis to the end in Revelation. And we see them reaching this culmination in the cross. And so after each point, we'll look back and we'll ask ourselves, how does that theological truth apply to our lives? So let's read the passage together. If you want to open in your Bibles, if you have them out at home with you, hopefully you do. Mark 15, 33 through 39. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. Now in typical fashion, Mark does not provide a ton of detail. 
But what he does is he weaves a rich tapestry of deep, deep theological truths. And he moves quickly from peace to peace. And he leaves us with a passage that seems simple. Jesus died. But it contains big pieces of the overall Bible story. So what are those things that Mark is trying to connect to his audience? Remember that question that Mark is asking. Who do you say Jesus is? Let's explore idea number one. A theology of suffering. It seems pretty obvious how Jesus on the cross fits into this idea of suffering. The entire book of Mark speaks to this idea. Theologian Harry Cronus summed up well in an article he wrote on Mark, and he said this, The handwriting on the wall with respect to Jesus' dark destiny appears as early as Mark 2.20 and a crescendo of rejection stories interspersed with death notices follows thereafter. Jesus is spurned by his own family. He is scorned, plotted against, falsely convicted by his religious elders. He is betrayed by one of his closest friends and abandoned by the rest of his friends. He is condemned by his own compatriots. He is unjustly sentenced to die brutalized and crucified by civil authorities. He is disparaged by persons unknown as he agonizes on the cross. He is cursed by his companions in death. And then in his last dying moments, he is ostensibly forsaken even by his God. That paints a really good picture for us of the suffering that Christ endured, even just in the book of Mark. Jesus was a man well acquainted with grief and sorrow. And Hans showed us last week how Jesus is the suffering servant prophesied about in Isaiah 53. And at the climax of his suffering, Jesus calls out, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it seems like kind of an obscure thing to call out. But Jesus at this moment, he's quoting from Scripture as he often does. And he's quoting Psalm 22 that Rachel read for us this morning. So let's revisit it. If you want to turn to Psalm 22, I want to highlight a couple of those passages again because I think it's so powerful in giving some explanation for what Jesus was talking about and what he was going through. Psalm 22.1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Let's jump down to verse 14. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shard, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Jesus is painting a a very grim picture of what he's experiencing. And it's easy to draw a conclusion that Jesus might be in despair at this moment. But if we carry out through the rest of the psalm, take a look in um, verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. 
And if you jump down to verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow down all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord in the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Now there's some debate here uh, amongst theologians and scholars about what Jesus meant when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This passage is commonly known as the cry of dereliction. And we don't have time um, to get into that debate this morning. I know Seth was hoping that we would be here for like three hours, but we don't have time. But we have time to say that we know that Jesus was deeply troubled by his experience. And many scholars believe that at this moment, Jesus was either too exhausted to pray the whole psalm, rightly so, and or he was acting as many rabbis do, and as we've seen him do already in Mark, and he was quoting just the first part of an extended passage of Scripture, and he was counting on the listener to get the surrounding context. Now, I believe this quotation from Psalm 22 echoes and continues the prayer that we saw Jesus pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. If there is any other way, God, let this suffering pass from me. But not my will, but your will be done. When Jesus cries out in relational and physical suffering, because all of the evil on earth and in the cosmos had descended upon him in that moment. But if we hold the entirety of Psalm 22 in view, we know how the prayer would have ended had Jesus had the strength to continue. Jesus says, I will tell of your name in the midst of the congregation. Yahweh has not hidden his face from me, but he has heard when I cried to him. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to Yahweh. Yahweh is king, and he rules over the nations. They shall come and proclaim the righteousness of Yahweh to a people who have not been born yet, that Yahweh has done it. You see, even in the midst of suffering and what felt like desertion, Jesus continued to trust in the Father, that he would deal rightly with him, and that ultimately he would restore and vindicate him and rule over the earth. And that's a, pro- a powerful prayer to consider, especially in the times we find ourselves in. You see, God's people, even his own son, have endured suffering as a way to bring the ultimate glory to the Father. And so let's look at how this theme is carried out through Scripture and brought into fullness in Jesus. We obviously don't have time to exegete all of these stories, so I'm just going to give a quick reference and a synopsis. So I want to take a look at Joseph, just an example of of someone in the Old Testament who suffered unjustly. And it was actually just last month that I had the privilege of teaching uh, part of this story to our grade school class. Many of you are probably familiar with the story, but Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. And Joseph, because he was the favorite, he, he suffered. His brothers didn't like him. And Joseph was beaten and sold into slavery by his brothers. 
Then he was falsely accused and imprisoned. And Joseph was a man familiar with grief, acquainted with sorrow, not just physical, but emotional and relational as well. But Joseph, like Jesus, never stopped trusting in Yahweh. And eventually, Joseph was vindicated, and he was raised up in power in Egypt, and he led the world through a horrific famine. And as a result, he was reconciled to his brothers. He saved them, and he was able to preserve God's chosen people. And he sums it up well in Genesis chapter 50, verses 18 through 20. And it says, His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. God used the suffering that Joseph endured because of the sin and evil of his brothers to save the world. Does that sound a little bit like Jesus on the cross? Does it sound like the text before us this morning? It should. I'd also encourage you guys in your free time this week to go back and look at the story of Job. It's another example of a blameless person who experienced suffering and was ultimately vindicated by God. And so the question here is, if God's people have suffered for millennia, even God's own son suffered, even the Savior of the world, Jesus himself, what expectations do I have around suffering? As a follower of Jesus, what expectations do I have around suffering? And especially in the season, it's important to look inwardly about what our ex- expectations are and to make sure they are in line with what Scripture teaches us. You see, we see the New Testament church facing immense persecution and suffering. Peter and Paul and the other disciples were beaten, imprisoned, martyred in various ways because of their faith. And so, What do I expect to happen in regards to suffering? And what will my response be? Not if, but when suffering comes. Will we respond like Paul in Philippians 3? In Philippians 3, 7, he says this, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. A powerful response by Paul. He would give up anything, endure any amount of suffering, if it meant being with Christ and sharing in his resurrection for eternity. 
So will we respond like Paul? Or will we shake our fists at God and ask him, why, why, why? And will we question the only one who has an eternal perspective? You see, I've been challenged even in the past few weeks on this topic of suffering. I've seen many people, even in this church, suffering. And as my dad told me three weeks ago that he had cancer, I was confronted with this. How do I respond in suffering? When I'm confronted with the traumatic stories that my students tell me during the course of a school day, I'm confronted with, how do I deal with this? When I'm confronted with the ongoing pandemic and all of that, and all that comes with it, I'm confronted with it. When our pastor is out, and I'm asked to step in, I'm confronted with it. And I was reminded of a discussion that I had, perhaps prophetically, with one of my good friends this summer. He'd asked me what I was learning during this pandemic about myself and about God. And I told him that I was realizing how much I idolized my own comfort. I am definitely a creature of comfort. And my prayer of repentance had been and continues to be, Lord, give me empathy and compassion to support those who are suffering. And when it is my turn to suffer, May I suffer well. May the same spirit that allowed Jesus to endure the cross allow me to endure whatever comes my way. So brothers and sisters, may our prayer be as a church as well. May we suffer well. Jesus modeled suffering for us. Let's look at our second main idea. Our second main idea, a theology of atonement. Well, what do we mean when we say atonement? Basically, we think of atonement as primarily a payment for sin or wrongdoing. And this is absolutely correct. We also want to look at what does the Bible as a whole, as a whole narrative say about atonement? Because we want to make sure that we see the fullness of this. And it goes hand in hand with the last point that we'll talk about, which is kingdom. And it's interesting, when we look back at our passage from Mark, we know a couple things that should hearken us back to the Old Testament. I'm going to turn to Mark, and I'm going to read the passage again for you, just the first part. And when the sixth hour had come, and the way that they're, they're telling time there, that's about noon, there was darkness over the whole land, and until the ninth hour... Oh, it's weird. This passage starts with darkness over the land. And so that should 
spur in our mind those moments of darkness. And we know that this had to have been some supernatural phenomenon that happened to make it dark there in Israel, in Jerusalem. Because it would have been impossible for a solar eclipse to have happened because Passover always happens on a full moon. So the physics of that, just they don't work. So we can think back then to the very first Passover. That very first Passover in Exodus, which incidentally enough was preceded by darkness. And again, I just want to highlight the story, but you can note where it's at so you can revisit it later on. And it's found in Exodus 10, and it starts in verse 21, at least the part that we're going to talk about today. And it goes through chapter 12. So what happens here is the Lord is is speaking to Moses, and Moses is continuing to confront Pharaoh, an agent of evil in the world. And Moses keeps telling Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh keeps grasping tighter, and his heart gets harder and harder. And eventually, the Lord speaks to Moses, and he says, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. That's pretty intense. It's not just darkness, but it's that Yahweh says, I don't want them just to not see any light. I want them to feel the heaviness of this darkness, the heaviness of this coming judgment. And the closest analogy I have to this feeling happened just a couple months ago. You all remember, I'm sure, that Tuesday afternoon after Labor Day, here in Salem, the smoke from the fires basically blotted out the sun. And I looked back at my pictures that I had taken on my phone that day, and it was dark at 11 a.m. And you could feel the heaviness, not just from the physical air being filled with smoke, but also psychologically because of the smoke. You knew what was happening, these intense fires that were burning all across our state. And it just felt heavy. It was a darkness. And in the case of the Egyptians, and in the case of the darkness surrounding the cross, it could be felt because that darkness brought with it God's judgment. John writes in 1 John, In God there is light. There is no darkness in him. And so God is symbolically removing his hand of protection and allowing all of the evil and sin in the world to gather in that moment, at that time and space, and it causes a physical darkness. But the Lord doesn't condemn all of his people to suffer. It also says in Exodus that all of the people of Israel had light where they lived. It's interesting. It's again a rich picture being painted of the gospel. And then God tells Moses to have the people kill a spotless lamb and to spread the blood of that lamb over their doorposts and on their lintel so that the destroyer will not enter. And then those houses are spared by the blood of the lamb. They're spared the consequences of judgment. The evil as a result of sin is passed over them. And it's cliche perhaps to point out at this point, but if you took a hyssop branch and you dipped it in blood and you waved it from the top to the bottom and from side to side on each door, it would 
make the shape of a cross. And in the same way, Jesus was offered up as our Passover lamb, that we may be sprinkled by the blood of his perfect sacrifice, so that we also may be spared the consequences of evil and sin, and spared the wrath of God's judgment. But what does this blood of the lamb do? Well, it allows God to satisfy his character of being just, while also sparing those who have obeyed him. It allows Yahweh to defeat evil. In the Exodus story, we see Pharaoh as this embodiment of evil and the enemy of God's chosen people. And when God's judgment comes on Pharaoh, it is a devastating blow that culminates with Pharaoh and all of his army being wiped out and God's people being free from the bondage of slavery. And in the cross, we see Herod and Pilate and Caiaphas as these representatives of evil. And we see all of the evil in the world gathering in that darkness. All of the sin in the world doing its worst to Jesus in the cross. So much so that he saw. It's almost as if he saw God's hand coming in. God's hand of protection being removed. Darkness creeping in. And he cried out in anguish. But in doing this, it allowed Yahweh to pass judgment on sin and evil in the flesh once and for all so that his people who have obeyed him and are part of his kingdom may be saved by the blood of the lamb and able to live in freedom from the bondage of sin. This is what Paul writes to the Colossians. He says this in Colossians 2.14. He said, this he set aside, meaning the consequence for our sin. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, meaning in Jesus. You see, God through Christ on the cross literally nailed our sin up with Jesus and he makes his enemies look foolish because of how they were defeated. Now we've seen Jesus pronounce his judgments already especially on the temple and on the temple system. If you want to look back in our teaching series from Mark 13, uh, we talked about it at length there. So it would be no surprise to the hearers of Mark's gospel that something dramatic would happen to the temple at the climax of the story. And as we look back in Mark 15, 37, it says, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You see, as Jesus breathes his last, the curtain of the temple was ripped from top to bottom. And we're not talking about like a basic shower curtain either. We're talking about a woven um, tapestry that is about a foot thick. So it's not like anyone could just go in and rip it, right? It had to be divine action. And as outlined in Leviticus 16, only the high priest was able to enter through that curtain or veil and into the Holy of Holies, the Sanctum Sanctorum. And he was only able to go in one day of the year on the Day of Atonement. 
And the sins of the people would be confessed and atoned for. And the irony here is not is that it's not a goat that is sacrificed for the sins of God's people, but the greatest of all time, Jesus, who sacrificed himself, filling the role of our great high priest and perfect sacrifice. And we know that his sacrifice was accepted by Yahweh because at the very moment of his death, the curtain separating the holy of holies from the rest of the temple was ripped violently from the top to the bottom. Again, it's something that only Yahweh could do signifying that the sacrificial system is, only, is over. And we see the same verb used for tearing open used in one other spot in Mark. And that is in chapter 1 when God shows up at Jesus' baptism and it says the heavens are torn open and Jesus speaks and he declares, and God speaks and he declares to Jesus, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And so God's actions, ripping the curtain in the temple, echo his approval of his beloved son. And we see the cry of the prophet Isaiah from Isaiah 64 being answered at this moment. Oh God, that you would tear open the sky and come down yourself and save us from your enemies. And God, through his son, fulfilled the need for any more temple sacrifices because sin and death and evil had been defeated. Jesus accomplished in one moment what thousands of years of animal sacrifice could not. And that is dealing the fatal blow to evil and taking in himself the consequences for all sin. And the New Testament authors carry forward this idea in Romans 8. Paul writes there to the the church at Rome. Romans 8, 1 through 4, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. God has done what the temple system and the law could never do, namely defeat sin. But because Jesus came in the flesh and took our sin in the flesh, God's justice could be satisfied and sin and evil could be defeated once and for all. The triune God colluded with himself to defeat this enemy together. And because of the steadfast love and faithfulness, Jesus was a willing participant in this victory over sin, not a victim or casualty of it. The author of Hebrews carries this temple theme forward as well. And he writes in Hebrews 10, 19 through 22, he writes this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, meaning we can reach the holy of holies, there's no more curtain there. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his very own flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Brothers and sisters, we have been washed clean by Jesus' blood. 
and we can draw near to God and his people. And this brings me to ask the question in reflection. Have I put my trust in Jesus' work on the cross alone for salvation? Have I put my trust in Jesus' work alone for salvation? This is the crux of the gospel. Hey, Latin pun. Jesus has done the work. We simply put our faith in him and follow him as king. It's a very basic point, but day to day again, I'm convicted by it. Especially when I feel like I'm losing control of the world around me. It's very easy to do. So I start striving and trying to control things because I think that somehow I can save myself from this world that I'm currently experiencing. And this is something that I often need to repent of. And as we noted earlier, we can't avoid suffering. The Christian life isn't about avoidance of suffering. The Christian life is about rejoicing through trials that God has won our salvation. You see, to minimize the suffering and to trust on ourselves is to minimize the work of the cross. Brothers and sisters, may we put our hope in the author and finisher of our faith, Jesus, our King. Jesus has atoned for sin and defeated evil once and for all. Let's explore our last point together this morning. A theology of kingdom. A theology of kingdom. We've talked multiple points during the course of our study through Mark, as well as other points in other books, about what it means to be a kingdom. So the simple definition of kingdom that we've used is a king ruling over a people. A king ruling over a people. We saw last week the imagery of Jesus being coronated as king of the Jews. Even though the people who were doing the coronating were intending to mock Jesus, they are ironically saying more than they know. We don't see the term king even being used in Mark until chapter 15. And then it's like boom, 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 boom. Six times in the span of these 30 verses. Mark uses the term king. And the idea culminates in this subversion of expectations in verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. This confession fits well with the way that Mark has told the story this far. Because it takes our expectations and subverts what a hearer might expect. But then it creates sort of this light bulb moment where, again, these threads converge from the rest of Scripture on on the cross. And remember, Mark is a written account of what would have most likely been preaching or performance in the early church. And so as the converted Jews living in Rome... And the converted Romans in the church, hearing this gospel together, they would have been wrestling with and hopefully answering the same question that we have been. Who do you say Jesus is? And they would have been clued in to all the same dramatic ironies we have been. 
the announcement of God at Jesus' baptism to start the story, saying, this is my son. The confession of Peter that was close, but just missed the mark. See what I did there? Come on, guys. I've waited for like a year to get a chance to make that pun. I couldn't resist. You see, Peter confesses Jesus as the Messiah, but he doesn't realize that Jesus is also God because God, it, Jesus rebukes him just a few verses later and calls him Satan because he is still not quite getting it. But we see the irony in that. And the early church would have heard God breaking in at the, moment, at the Mount of Transfiguration saying again, this is my son, listen to him. They would have seen the irony in Caiaphas asking Jesus if he was the son of the blessed in a mocking way. And we're right there with them. And we've come to an emotional climax where the hero of the narrative is beaten, tortured, falsely accused, killed. And all of his followers are scattered. His friends abandon him. And we reach this point in the story where it's almost like, what's the point? Evil wins. Shoot. And you can almost hear this dramatic pause in the performance. Jesus breathes his last. And then, bam! The curtain is torn and the centurion comes to a shocking conclusion. He answers the question that I hope we've all answered and expect that because the centurion was an enemy of Christ, the guy who was overseeing his death, that he may answer with even more mockery. But in a surprise twist, it is this man, this Gentile, who is the first to truly recognize the fullness of who Jesus was and is. Surely this man was the Son of God. And that's the power of the gospel. That in his dying, in his sacrificial love, even his enemies are drawn near. And I read an interesting paper by Dr. Kelly Iverson in studying for this teaching. And in it, he looks at this specific section of text through a lens of ancient performance literature. And he suggests that the gospel would have exclusively been preached or performed as a whole book in the first century church, not read and studied piece by piece as we do it today. Can you imagine Hans going through an entire book every Sunday? We'd have to like start on Saturday morning and go through Sunday evening, I think. But he suggests, based on comparison to other ancient literature and the tone of the recorded language, that the audience response to the oral tradition at this very moment was probably applause. Hmm, that seems strange. Jesus just got crushed under the weight of sin and we're supposed to clap? You see, we and the first century church already understood what this centurion is confessing. We've already answered Mark's question of who do you say Jesus is? And we expect the centurion to remain an enemy of Christ. We expect him 
to continue to embody evil and sin and rebellion. But when he confesses, he is saved. And he's no longer an enemy, but a brother. And we expect to be crushed by the climax of this story. But we can already see in this confession the death of Jesus doing its saving work. And we have hope. And we rejoice. And it's almost like the evangelist left this part of the text open as an opportunity for the audience to respond. I think of that meme from the movie Rudy when the groundskeeper finally sees Rudy on the field and he starts giving him the slow clap. We can see the centurion confessing what we hoped everyone in the story would confess. And we rejoice and we say, yes, Lord, hallelujah. You see, Mark is preaching most likely to the Roman church. And the character that they may have identified with the most would be that Roman, the one who oversaw the execution of Christ. And in fact, they, and even us in Salem in 2020, have in effect overseen the execution of Christ by a rebellion to the living God. And so we can see ourselves in that centurion. And after seeing the salvific work of Christ on the cross, confessing that, Jesus, you are the Son of God. We rejoice as the Lord receives us into his kingdom. That's just a piece of why the confession is so subversive. But what's the other part of it? Well, we see the centurion's posture toward Jesus. It says, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. He stood facing him is described in idiomatic Hebrew language that one would have used to describe someone standing in the temple before the Holy of Holies. He's facing the literal sanctum sanctorum, the place where God's spirit dwells, Jesus. But the title he gives Jesus is not only indicating the divinity of Christ, but also indicating his reign as the true king. You see, as a Roman soldier, the only person you would describe as the son of God would be Caesar. The cult of the Roman emperors would deify the Caesar. The emperor would be seen as the incarnation of the divine as well as king of the physical world. So for this soldier specifically to confess that Jesus is the son of God, it's a statement not just of divinity, but it is a statement of huge political implications and allegiances. Jesus' rule is absolute in heaven and on earth. And now we can see how the tearing of that veil in the temple fits so perfectly. That barrier between heaven and earth is shattered through Christ. He has brought his kingdom rule from heaven to earth.
Mark is communicating to his hearers that Jesus is God of everything. And all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. His kingdom is now established and revealed on earth as it is in heaven. His death on the cross has not only atoned for our sins, but perhaps over and above, he has defeated the enemies of God and his people. The evil and the sin that were standing in the way of his kingdom establishment. You see, this gospel message that Jesus is preaching is not just about personal forgiveness of sins. While it is true that Jesus takes our iniquities on himself, and that's a big piece of it, he's also dealt with the bigger problem, the problem of evil and sin. He has defeated sin and death on the cross. And the enemies of God are vanquished, not through military might, or as N.T. Wright likes to say, and we may give a hearty amen here in America, by dropping bombs on them, but by the sacrificial love of the triune God embodied in the person of Jesus. And we saw this play out already in the story of the first Passover. God defeats his enemies because of his love for his chosen people, so that he may establish a kingdom for them where he is at the head and center, where he is active in their daily lives, and where their rhythm and community is centered around reflecting his character throughout the world. Yahweh has not changed. Jesus has not changed. He is still at work through his Holy Spirit in his people, working to establish a kingdom where he is at the head and center, active in our daily lives, where the rhythm of our life and our community is centered on reflecting the self-sacrificial love of God in the world. Jesus, the Son of Man, comes and he receives the kingdom. This is how Daniel 7 describes it. And we've referenced this a lot in Mark, and I'm excited to reference it again this morning. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. That's Jesus. And he came to the ancients of days. That's Yahweh. And he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. See, God's kingdom is never going to run out. Jesus has brought that kingdom to bear here on earth through his cross and resurrection. And Peter, the one whose testimony Mark is based on, says this in 1 Peter 2, chapter 9. Sorry, 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Jesus' own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of Jesus, who called you out of a darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Pulls together this whole theme, Passover, darkness, judgment. God's mercy and love. 
We've been called out of the darkness of sin and evil and judgment into God's marvelous light because of the work that Jesus did on the cross. And so now we ask the questions of ourselves. Have I responded to Jesus not only as my Savior, but also as my King? Do I give Jesus the authority to shape how I am living as a holy one, as Peter says, set apart for his glory? Do I give Jesus the authority to shape how I am living as a holy one, set apart for his glory? You've heard the elders ask these questions before. And the one that we like to ask in our member meetings is, what does it mean to you that Jesus is king? And usually these conversations with folks, uh, we talk about how we are using our resources, our time, talents, and treasures to live into God's kingdom. And we talk about what we are doing to reflect God's character in the world around us. And so, brothers and sisters, let us consider this question. Let us consider how to continue to stir one another up to love and good works. And all the more as we see the day of Christ drawing near. Jesus has established a kingdom, and he reigns as king. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. We see in the cross, in this short passage from Mark, a beautiful picture of God's unfailing love for us. A picture of his love that he has suffered for us. A picture of his love that he has paid a costly price for our sins. And a picture of his love that he has defeated our enemies and given us a home in him. And as we go through this week, brothers and sisters, may we go as ambassadors of Jesus' kingdom. Amen.